Joel Peterson, absolutely thrilled to have you on Where Others Won't. Welcome to the show. Nice to be with you, Cody. I was just telling you before that I am kicking myself that I am coming to your content so late. I've been reading all of your blogs, uh, all your posts everywhere, had a look at the, the new book that's coming out. So I'm really glad this podcast is happening. Well, I thank you for doing that. I'm not that easy to find. I've not done, uh, done much to make myself that easy to find. But I, I have taught students for many years. And, and uh, so I, I decided, well, I'll pass around what I teach them. No, I'm glad you've decided to do that as well. And so I want to touch on the core concepts of your new book. It's going to really hit home for a lot of coaches and managers that listen to the show. But let's start here. I want to talk to you about identity because something that you talk about even in your bio on Amazon is you've had three careers, you've had four decades of marriage, you've got seven kids, you've had roles as you know CFO, CEO, you're the chairman right now uh, of JetBlue Airways. You've been a director, you've been a professor, you're a founder, an investor, an entrepreneur, an author. So in this world of when people want to know what are you and they kind of expect one answer, how, like how do you think about your identity and who you are and what you stand for right now? Well, it sounds like I can't keep a job. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so I'm, I love leading things. I love learning new things and I love leading people and helping people to maximize their potential and to really be a team that shares a common objective. And I always say that, you know, if you can help somebody be a respected member of a winning team doing something meaningful, you've changed their life. Uh, so to me, that's a fun thing to do. So I love the idea of building evergreen enterprises. Yeah, and the reason I wanted to start there was what I saw reflected in, in that little bio about you is something similar to myself, obviously, um, not all of it, but things like the different careers and how that's just becoming such a common thing for people everywhere now, whether they move countries and, and we were talking about where's home before and what they associate with and those kind of traditional ideas of, well, you know, I live here and I do this have kind of faded away. And so I like that you, you even just talk about that in how you describe what is really just a, a new book for you but it, it plays into your ideas around leadership and how those teams are built. Yeah, well, you know, they, they started talking about this thing they call the gig economy, where people have gigs. And uh, I think it's a really meaningful career because you take on different assignments, different roles, different ways of adding value. And it's a pretty meaningful way. Now, I did spend the first two decades of my life with the same company, you know, mm. where I, I had... From early to late, I was basically running a big company. And uh, so I know that side of it, but I really have enjoyed the gig way of going about having a career as well. And I think we're just starting to find wording and, and labels around that as well. But yeah, it's just something that's come up for me, especially around the careers and the changing of careers and, and just how that does. It, it, it is a consideration in, in how you identify yourself and uh, I think where I've landed, and this is what I wanted to talk to you about, and, and you mentioned that there was just, I just want to say I'm a leader. Whatever the scenario is, is that doesn't mean you're always in charge, but what it means is you're willing to, to take up the position that best suits the team at that time. Exactly. 
Yeah, many followers are great leaders too. Exactly. Let's start where most solid relationships should start. Let's start outlining what trust looks like. You wrote a wonderful piece and some of it has made its way into the book around the say-do gap and how it erodes trust um, but can also infest an organisation uh, and their brand as well. So tell us what that gap is and how we as leaders can close it, the say-do gap. Well, fundamentally, we trust people who deliver on promises. You know, if you, if you were to just boil it down, you know, if somebody tells you they'll do something and they do it, and they do it consistently, we begin to trust them. If somebody presents themselves as being a certain way, and then secretly they're not, or in a private life they're not, that gap is actually destructive of trust. And if we can't trust them in one arena, we learn not to trust them in another. And as trust erodes, we find people being wary, and they get lawyers involved, and they can't make durable agreements, and they're not flexible, and they don't innovate as much, and all kinds of things break down. So if you can close that gap, and basically your brand is that when you say something, you'll deliver on it, or you'll meet with the person and say, look, I'm falling short on this, here's why, and here's what I'm gonna do about it, then you can build trust, and you can uh, keep that really precious currency is really probably the most important thing you'll have as a leader. So I've slipped up here recently. My team had a training camp in Edmonton and one of our rules is not to be late to meetings. So everyone needs to be in the room at the time that the meeting says it's about to start. And I showed up late. I was helping some other guys find the room that we're in. It was a new university campus, but I was late and someone called me out on it which is another part of our culture. But when I was reading your article, I, I was, again, thinking through me and my decisions and, and how that affects our culture. And even something small like that, you know, whether it's a curfew or whether it's, yeah, we say we're going to you know, make cold calls between 5 and 6 p.m. to hit a new time zone for our sales organization or whatever it is, you're exactly right. It's, it's, it's that gap and there is there's a lot of organizations that seem to have a, a large gap between what the leaders say and, and what they actually do themselves. Yeah. It's an inauthenticity that people are really smart about. And once they realize that leaders aren't authentic around it, they don't trust them anymore. But you know, so people are going to slip up. I mean, the fact is you had a good reason to be late, but if you don't acknowledge it and say what you're going to do about it, you've actually had a withdrawal uh, in your trust account. Whereas if you'll go to people and say, gosh, guys, I am so sorry. I blew it. Uh, this won't happen again. Or here's why it happened. And I'm so sorry. Uh, then you can actually restore trust. I think that's one of, the, one of the things about trust is you can be intentional about building a high trust organization, which means you have to be able to repair it when it's strained. Absolutely. So I've said this on this show before. I actually think what you've hit on here is what we're calling the problem with millennials. I actually think that the problem, what we're calling the problem with millennials is that they are now unwilling to put up with this gap and they will call managers out on it. And I think that's a, a large part of what we see as the problem, but it's really just a group of people saying, well, yeah, if we're being asked to do something, why aren't you doing it as well? Yeah. You think that would be fair? 
Well, I don't know if it's the problem with millennials. Um, I think we... I was saying that with inverted commas, yeah. Yeah, it's a common thing. We tend to oversimplify that. I find that they're quite idealistic, but they're also young. They're inexperienced, and uh, some of the rough edges will be chipped off with experience. But I think they are, uh, because they're uh, idealistic, they expect us to do what we say we're going to do. They expect authenticity, and they reward authenticity. And so I think the easy way to deal with that is just stay transparent with them. That doesn't mean you have to do everything perfectly all the time or you'll never be in their good graces. It just means that you have to acknowledge. Um, I, I find them to be really delightful. They, they, uh, they're not joiners. There's a whole bunch of things that I think are true about them. But boy, they're, they're hardworking. They're, I mean, people I think have labeled them in ways that I consider relatively unfair. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because you kind of see them twofold in, you know, you've got a role at Stanford University and, and in the workplace as, as chairman of, of JetBlue, like I mentioned before. So maybe just talk about kind of, you've kind of seen them through the, the process of, you know, coming out of school and, and entering into the workforce. Um, so maybe just extrapolate on that a little bit more for me. Well, I've got an army of children too. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> so I've, I've, I've had them up close and personal. Uh, my experience uh, with dealing with them is if they know I care about them, they will actually take feedback from them. I can say virtually anything to them. These are my expectations and here's why. And by the way, they know that I really uh, want their best interests. That, that's a really powerful way to build trust with another human being. doesn't mean you can't give feedback and you can't be honest and transparent and authentic and and even, you know, critical. But if they don't think you care about them or have your, their interests at heart, uh, they'll, be pretty they'll be maybe tougher than earlier generations. We're no longer in a hierarchical sort mm -hmm. of top-down kind of organization. They, they are in, most of them are uh, what I would call volunteers. They're information, high information employees. And therefore, the contract with them is one where you have to have those elements where the say-do gap is minimal, where there's authenticity, transparency, where you're working on building high trust. You can stumble around, but you got to fix it. Do you think that's a major gap for a lot of organizations right now in terms of just that, that contract around trust? What does trust look like? And actually identifying that and giving it words and language we just kind of we just seem to be coasting along, presuming that we've still got trust because there's an employer-employee relationship, but I don't think that's good enough anymore. No, I don't think people really understand trust. I think they think it's a this kind of fuzzy, feel-good, vague notion. I like you, therefore I trust you. I have a I have a good feeling about this. Actually, one of the reasons that I wrote a prior book called The Ten Laws of Trust was I was trying to analyze, you know. What are the things that contribute to building a high trust organization? And I kind of came away with 10 laws that if you'll observe these 10 laws and be rigorous about them, you can actually increase the trust levels in the organization. So I think to me, it's something of people understanding uh, really what makes for a high trust organization and then fixing where you have gaps. So the reason we're talking about trust is you've got a new book coming out called Entrepreneurial Leadership, The Art of Launching New Ventures, Inspiring Others and Running Stuff, which is a great subtitle, by the way. So can I tell you a funny story about that? Please. <laughs> I, I was going to name the book Running Stuff. 
is Harper Collins. That's the part I love. I know that I was, I was, well, maybe we can get them a change. But, uh, they came back and they said, we market tested it and it attracts joggers. <laughs> but to me, it really comes down to how do you make the trains run on time? How do you excite people? How do you put together a great team and really get results predictably? How do you grow profitably? How do you get people to have fun and want to be together? And that to me is the thrill of running stuff. But in any event, it, it did make it into the subtitle. Well, I love that it did. Uh, so, and entrepreneurial leadership, just to explain that, we don't mean entrepreneurs here, do we? Not at all. I, and I think that's one of the important things uh, that's a distinction for what, from what people may think when they read that is entrepreneurs light fires, they innovate, they create new things, but they're not necessarily able to maintain them, to staff them, to build a durable enterprise around them. In fact, in many cases, they're the worst people to do that. There's a thing called the founder's gap, that, or the founder's trap, actually, that, uh, that a lot of entrepreneurs fall into, is that they're really great at starting something, but they really don't have the skill set or the interest in managing, administrating, uh, dealing with the politics, building policies, doing all the things it takes to build a, a durable enterprise. So what I try to describe is the entrepreneurial leader is one who can innovate and create durable change. And so the first step that you outline in the book there is, is around trust. And then you go on to talk about focusing on creating a mission. So, I'd love if you could share with us some guidelines around creating a mission statement that's actually effective. Cause I pay so much attention to this. Like I, I go on LinkedIn almost daily and I actually pair up and I'll go on the corporate website and have a look at the mission. And then I'll go and pair that up with the job description and we'll get into hiring in a minute, but there's, there's so many gaps in like what companies have made their mission or what they've written about. But, so how do we make this actually effective? Well, so uh, I think you've described what I think is a big problem. Most mission statements create cynicism. You know, people, <laughs> people frame these high-sounding, high-minded notions and put them on the wall and then they don't live them. And uh, people become more cynical. And in many cases, they're too general. They're not unique. They don't inspire. Uh, my experience with great mission statements, if you think about it as a... Uh, a sort of a, a mountain range in front of you and you have to decide which peak it is you're all going to climb together and the only way to really do that well is to come together and decide together so it's your mission statement is created by the group and, and my experience is that the the more that you can get people to say what are the words uh, words matter uh, we want to get the five words that define our brand around what it is we're trying to accomplish. The ways I always ask the question is, what, is, what does winning look like? If we were to win, what would it be? And get everybody to agree on that. Otherwise, everybody's scrambling all over the mountain range, climbing different peaks and not agreeing, mm -hmm. not belayed to each other, and it's a mess. So I think getting it and getting it in a pithy way that people can remember and are inspired by the mission because they've helped create it, is a really important thing. And by the way, it's really hard to do. It is. Let me throw this one at you then, because this is something that I've been ruminating on and have given a couple of talks on. My proposition is that 
if we took that kind of start with why idea, this, this mission that we're on, why did the company come into existence? If we flip that around and took it away from products and customers, you know, that idea of, I think Simon talks about in his talk, you know, Apple challenging the status quo and everything they do. And that comes out in their products and their marketing and helps attract employees. What if we flip that around and said, we exist to build the greatest teams or the most robust teams or the most resilient teams in every discipline that we operate? What if that was what our success was for my organization? Yeah. So in some ways you're, you're talking about becoming superlative. You know, you're, you really want to be the best at something which typically inspires people. People love to become the best at something. At JetBlue, uh, David Neeleman, who was the founder, said that his mission was to bring humanity back to air travel, mm. which, is a, which is a pretty good and ennobling thing. And it did rally a bunch of people around it. Our next CEO said, our objective is to serve humanity. Mm. And that was a broader, it seemed vaguer in some ways, but JetBlue began doing community service. We've done a million hours of community service, planting trees, helping with hurricane relief, and we've built a culture around service. And uh, so we talk about the JetBlue experience. So when you come to JetBlue, you feel different flying JetBlue. You feel different interacting with our crew members than with others. So while it sounds kind of vague, because people have worked on it and created it themselves, they own it. And there is a difference. There's a cultural difference that's emerged. Yeah. And the reason that I came across that thought and why I started presenting it to the world was I've stood in so many resignation meetings or celebrations where they, you know, they bring out the cupcakes and they get the person to stand up. I've been here for 10 years, blah, blah, blah. And then the one thing that they say consistently, it's never I'll miss the products that we make. It's never I'll miss our customers. It's always I'll miss you guys, the guys in the room, the team. Yep. And so as a sports person myself, who I, my life has evolved around trying to build and manipulate teams and uh, give them whatever they need to, to get over a barrier. I started to think maybe we've potentially been looking at this the wrong way. People are actually motivated by the teams and they miss the teams that they're on. Absolutely. So I'm going to give you, uh, this probably won't make it to your program, but there's a fellow by the name of Anson Dorrance, who is the women's soccer coach at the University of North Carolina. He's been on the show. Okay. Well, he may have told the story about, so he's won 23 national championships, more than any other NCAA coach. And he has this letter he writes to his student, and he basically says, you are little societies. You're playing for the people in front of you and the people behind you. And uh, so he celebrates his seniors. And, and the whole idea that they're playing for each other really captures that sense of community uh, that you just described. And then the, the kind of flow on under this is really where the, the, the tires meet the road for me. And that's the building the alignment underneath. So aligning the core values and, and actually putting some meat on the bones of the practical aspects of this. What does it look like on a day-to-day occurrence so we've got this you know we're serving humanity mission which is you know that peak that you're talking about we're all climbing that way 
but then there's the steps that it takes to get there one foot in front of the other. Yeah. And so as, as we go through this, you know, how do we, how do we build that out given there's going to be differing goals and differing incentives on all these different teams, especially as we grow to a, a sizable organization, like how do we keep that all on the same page? So I think the notion of alignment is really powerful. And I always talk about your values have to be aligned with whatever your objective is. And your objective is winning and however you define winning, but winning should include things like profitable growth and respect for other human beings and maybe achieving some certain market uh, end. So whatever that objective is, then you have to have a strategy uh, that gets you there. So you decide, are we going to do this wholesale, retail, buying other company, you know, whatever the strategy is. And then it breaks down into tactics. And tactics are who's doing what, by when, who do they report to, uh, what are the budgets. So there's a bunch of projects that get into that. And I always say, break down whatever it is you're trying to achieve into four things. One, what are the deliverables? What is the timetable? What is the budget? And who is the champion? In other words, who is the party responsible? And then report on those things and keep, man keep managing and make those transparent so everybody knows what the projects are that are getting the strategy achieved that uh, fold on up to the objective. And then finally, you have this thing that I call controls. These are the metrics. These are the measures. This is what you publish. So this is how you look at it. And I think if you get alignment top to bottom between values, uh, objectives strategy tactics and controls and there's no there's there's nothing that isn't consistent and everybody understands it and they have a line of sight from their job and their relationships and what they're delivering to the uh, to the peak to the objective you have a, a a smooth functioning team that's hitting on all cylinders so i don't think there's a big problem with I mean, people always compete for resources, they compete for priorities, but to me, that's a healthy thing in an organization. And the job mm -hmm. of the leader is just to say, this is what the priority is for this season. So let's all lock arms and go after it. So we've hit on the first two, trust and mission within your book. And the third one is, is hiring. And I, I, I really wanna dig into this one with you. I'm currently writing a book about hiring. So you place a, a, a keen priority on hiring people for values consistency over professional experience and technical competencies. So given what we've talked about in trust and mission, why is this the next one? And, and then why do you have that? Uh, why are you seeking that consistency of values over what we've been taught to hire people on? Well, you know, the old saw that people get hired for what they know and fired for how they go about implementing it. Uh, to me, the, the measure is typically of, of somebody who can actually build your team and build a high quality uh, organization typically has to do with the soft skills. And so uh, I learned from uh, this fellow Trammell Crow that I worked with early on in my career. He said he hired for brains and heart. Mm. And what he meant by that is he didn't feel like he could change anybody's IQ and it wasn't just IQ, it was really street smarts, it was judgment, it was all the things that make up for somebody being able to make uh, good decisions, wise, wise calls. And then uh, he didn't think he could change their character much. Uh, so what they learned at their mother's knee was actually 
going to be what would drive them. He felt strongly that he could teach them anything else. They would mm -hmm. get experience from the job. Uh, over time, so I've been at it almost 50 years now, my experience is that's a pretty good measure. You know, if you can, if you can make sure that you've found out what somebody's heart is and what their capabilities are, the odds are really good that you'll be able to uh, turn them into, into a really helpful, productive partner. I think it was in either one of your articles or maybe another podcast with Harvard, you were talking about your mindset going into hiring. And the reason this shot off the page for me is that the way I'm constructing my next book is around, there's really two parts to this that I see. One is we need to change the mindset of, of hiring, hiring managers. There's still kind of this idea of, oh, I've got to go and interview someone. I've got to replace someone or Sally left when I you know, hadn't budgeted for her to leave. And it's kind of this like sigh straight away. And, and a lot of people hate having to hire. But you talk about this, this mindset and talking yourself and self-talk, like talking yourself into how much of a privilege it is to meet people that want to work with you. Exactly. I mean, this idea that somebody's going to become your partner. I like the idea of thinking of this person as a partner rather mm -hmm. than an employee. There's something hierarchical about that. And really the way we work today is largely as in partnership, really. The best relationships, the highest trust, most productive ones are as part. So you're actually interviewing somebody to become your partner. They're going to help you and you're going to help them. And I think having that mindset allows you to, to do a better job of figuring it out. It's, you're actually mutual problem solving. You can't make a good decision unless they're making a good decision. So you want to make sure that they have all the information they need about the company, about you, about how you work, about how you think about things and you do about them. And then you're solving for fit. Mm -hmm. And I think it's much better to solve for fit than it is to sort of plug a hole. Something that I've written about in the past, I'm going to build on top of is this idea of, we talked about job descriptions before, this idea of vulnerable job descriptions or vulnerable hiring and actually sharing what the problem is. And the way that I positioned it was at its core, everyone understands that you have an issue that needs solving. Otherwise you wouldn't be hiring anyway. Right. But what we tend to do is go with bravado. This is a great environment. We've got a great culture. We, as a salesperson, you're going to come in, we're going to give you all of our blue chip clientele and you're going to be hit the ground running from day one. And then we promise that and we've just, lied to them straight away. It's like lying to someone on the first date or before you've even met for the first date. But what would the world look like if we went in with a little bit more vulnerability and said something along the lines of, we need your help. Like, here's our problem. How can you help us? And that becomes our interview. And to your point, that sounds a lot more like a partnership to me. Well, and I think you're going to get better people. I don't, if you've ever been sold on something you can tell somebody's pushing something on you, you become reluctant, you become wary, you become doubtful. Uh, so I actually think when somebody says, here are the pros and cons of this situation, here's what somebody will need to do, here's the challenge in it. I mean, I'm actually more attracted. I, and, I, and I actually think better people are more attracted to that. I think your weaker people 
want to be sold and are sold. I think the people that are really your most capable partners going forward are often that because they say, boy, this is a real challenge. This is interesting. You know, I can be a partner with this person and we can accomplish a lot. So your, your mutual problem solving, those are always the best hires. Yeah. And that goes back to the mindset, you know, like there are going to be people, even if it is a dumpster fire, there are going to be good people that are actually attracted to that. And that, and again, going back to kind of use a sports analogy, you often see that in sports where there are certain coaches that are attracted to rebuilds. And then, you know, if we sit back and actually look at it, there are certain coaches who do really well on the other side, like Phil Jackson. What a lot of people don't talk about is both the Bulls and the Lakers made the conference semifinals and the conference finals the two years before he took both of those jobs. Yep. So he, he is a, a, an extraordinary coach, but what he is is a hump coach. He's taken two, two teams that were almost there and he's made them even more exquisite. And so there's going to be people on both ends of that spectrum, but you've got to tell them before they, <laughs> so they can take the right job. Yep. Yep. It's often solving for fit, you know? People have different skills. They have different mindsets, different ways of looking at things, going about it, building teams, and you want to fit them. It's like a puzzle piece you're trying to get. And you only, it only works if it works for them too. And you've talked a lot about the idea of including the actual team that they're going to be working on in the hiring process. Talk to me about that because I, I see that as a major gap as well, like freezing out the team and, and then really the manager is the only one that interacts with the, the new partner coming into the business and no one, and everyone just meets them on day one and shakes hands and goes, oh, okay, well, we're teammates now. There's, there's, there's something amiss there. Yeah. It's, it's actually a huge show of respect to say, I'm thinking about this. Here's what I'm looking for. I would love your input. Uh, I know I, and, and what I always do is maintain the ultimate call. Because I think you you have the mm-hmm. ultimate responsibility. So I, I will say things like, you know, I know I'm going to have to make this decision and I'm going to ask you to support it in the end, but I would sure love your input. That's so respectful. And the people are much more likely to uh, give you good feedback and to be supportive of, even if they haven't quite agreed with it, the fact that you've sought out their input. So I think getting the team on board happens at the interview stage. Couldn't agree more. And then another thing that you've talked about, which, which kind of hooks into to all of this, is this either over-reliance on internal candidates or external candidates. What do you mean when you, when you talk about that, that over-reliance? So I think there are pros and cons to each. I think if you only uh, hire internal candidates, you'll have some uh, inbreeding uh, you'll not be able to attract good new ideas. And if you need to make changes in an organization, the best way to do that is to bring in somebody from outside who has a different optic on the world. Uh, if you only attract outside candidates, you demoralize the, all of the internal candidates. You're missing a lot of the talent. You're not respecting them. So to me, the best thing, in most cases, I would lean heavily towards internal candidates unless I'm trying to change a culture or change something. I still would not ever eliminate the possibility of bringing in outside candidates. There's a lot of really talented people out there that are game changers. So I think you have to be open to both. It's a little bit like this old expression about triangulating. 
you know, mm -hmm. uh, expression about how people navigate. It's getting a different optic on something where you're seeing things three-dimensionally. And that's what happens when you have both internal and external candidates. Yeah. There's a lot of talk around this idea of it's kind of bundled into inclusivity, but really it's this idea of hiring yourself over and over again. And it, it is an issue, obviously. But how do you see that when we try to rectify this idea of we are looking for people like us because we're trying to go on the same mission. They need to be inspired by the same things, but also trying to not hire ourselves over and over again. How do we grapple with that? Because they seem to be two sides of the same coin. Well, it is a problem. Both are valid uh, concerns. We do tend to like people that we, whose experiences we recognize and feel familiar with. On the other hand, we then miss a lot of opportunities for inclusion and diversity and different viewpoints. I give the example in the book, I think, of the orchestra, where if we were listening to an orchestra made up all of oboes only, it would be a terrible sound. We would hate it. They're all alike. They all, they all uh, meld perfectly, but it would be awful. Uh, so we want the different timbers. We want the different kinds of instruments to make a beautiful sound. And that's the same with the diversity. On the other hand, if they were all playing a different, off a different piece of music, off a different sheet of music, it would be cacophony. It would be awful. So people, you have to have people who can work well together, who can play the same sheet of music, but who are playing different instruments. And to me, that's always been a model that has helped me think about keeping both of those ideas alive and well in my mind at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, they are very important, both of them as well. And yeah, I've, I've been kind of going back and forth on that one a little bit. And uh, it, it certainly needs more discussion and, and some more... Um, ideas around but it's it's great that it's at the the forefront of what we're doing now particularly within corporate organizations another thing that we really need to start talking about and thinking through is this idea of we've got this great team but then it becomes more about manicuring than adding to and you know i've written a line in in my book around or something to the effect that you know, who, who you let walk out the door is just as important as who you let walk in the door. And so like, how do we judge when it's time to move someone on either to a better role within our organization or to let them go? Because at the moment, what we do is we just let them go. We don't even think whether they're better deployed somewhere else. A lot of times deploying somebody uh, in a different role is building up deadwood in the organization. And it's because we don't have the courage to move them on. Uh, Alan Mulally has this expression that he says, you know, I'm gonna help somebody be happy someplace else. In other words, the fit isn't there. Uh, so I think there's that danger. On the other hand, there is this notion of coaching. Sometimes we just have a person that, that hasn't been given the feedback necessary to make the changes or they're in the wrong role. Uh, in a sports team, if you have a wide receiver who keeps dropping the ball, uh, you need to either bench them or make them into a, a defensive back or something else. You know, you change positions. So it's the same kind of thing when you're building a team. Business is a team sport. And so you have to think about people playing positions. And if they're unable to play that position at the top of their game, then they either have to cede their position, take on another position, 
go to the bench or be traded. You've hit on something perfect there. That's where my mind goes, particularly around redeployment into a better role. And then also the, a lot of the studies that come out around management and, and coaching. And um, I don't think we're quite there yet, but it's really around understanding that person and why they're dropping the ball. So you need to get to that first. So what we tend to do is, um, particularly in the corporate world, is tell people what to do or tell people that they're not hitting their goals and then hope that their performance improves. And the last resort is put them on a performance improvement plan. But I think the opposite needs to be true. You need to understand why they're not hitting their goals. I, I need to understand why my wide receiver, who could catch the ball, can't catch the ball. And that may be that the speed of the game is now too fast for him or her. That's possible. It may be a confidence thing. It may be something going on at home. Um, but until you ask those questions, both the leader and the employee or partner or whatever you want to call them, both kind of operate in these little bubbles and don't talk to each other. And then it's, it's on a hiding to nothing. But my mind kind of goes coaching first. Yeah. So I always ask my students to ask themselves the question, do I have a problem employee or an employee with a problem? And that's fundamentally getting at that issue. In many cases, there's an employee with a problem that if you could help them solve the problem, they would be great. But in some cases, you do have a problem employee and it's hurting the whole team and you need to make a change and typically sooner than later. And so you have to have insight. And the only way that you do that is by visiting with people and you know, being aware, being alive, what's going on in the organization. A lot of people just bury their heads. I, I have a, an entrepreneur who comes and visits my class and she says, uh, the way that I used to manage people is, I love you, I love you, I love you, get out of here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just unable to, you know, it, it, had to, it took something that was really egregious or to make the change. And usually that's a terrible way to, to manage. Love it. Okay. So we've built trust. We've uh, built the mission and the alignment. We've hired the best possible team. And then the fourth part that you talk about, the fourth kind of base camp on this, this track that we're on together is delivering results. So just broadly explain to me what, what you mean by that. Well, so it comes down to execution in the end. And what I tried to do is say, you know, if you're going to be an entrepreneurial leader, in other words, somebody who's going to be building an, endurable, an enduring enterprise, an evergreen enterprise, a team that functions well, there are several really common things that you're going to have to do. For example, you're going to have to sell. Every organization has to have revenue. And so it's a really important thing. And I found, so I was a chief financial officer for 10 years. And uh, I found that most of what I was doing was selling people. I was getting people to invest, to structure things, to make changes, whatever. And uh, so most of my job was selling. So there's a chapter on selling. And that's one of the skills that the entrepreneurial leader is going to have to have. Another one is negotiating. You're going to be opposite somebody trying to allocate resources, whether it's internally or externally. You're going to have to do a lot of negotiating. Uh, particularly if you consider every conversation is a form of negotiation. You're going to have to run meetings. You're going to have to think about how do you run an effective meeting so that they're efficient, people follow up on them, they like coming to them, etc. 
um, you're going to have to um, manage a turnaround. Every organization that I've ever been involved in has hit a, a, a bump in the road. Things haven't worked quite right, and you have to recover from reversals. So you have to know how to do that. So what I tried to do is just develop a, a series of mini maps that are almost a checklist and a set of mindsets that when you say, oh my gosh, I've run into this problem, you know, I've got I've to deal with conflict. How do you deal with it? How do you think about it? How do you go about fixing it so that you can move on and build this enduring enterprise? So that's what execution to me means. So talk to me about when the panic starts to set in. We've done the first three things with aplomb. We've got the right people in. We've built trust. We've got our mission. But then the results maybe don't come. And I'm thinking about a particular hockey team that maybe or maybe doesn't play about a quarter mile down the road from my house here in Toronto who have done the first three things really, really, really well but the results just don't seem to be coming. Like when do we flinch or remain unflinching in this mission? So I think you have to look then at each of the things. Do we, are we clear about what our goal is? And typically you have to set goals that are achievable, you know? So what is our goal? Our goal might be to win more games than we lose this year. And so what do we have to do to do that? Uh, in some turnarounds I've said, are winning for us, this quarter is going to be losing less money than we did last quarter. Now that doesn't sound like a win, but you have to go at it incrementally. So I would say that when things aren't working right, you again have to break it down into all of the things that you're doing and say, okay, how can we have interim wins? Because ultimately we want to, we want to achieve this evergreen enterprise that wins, that's, that grows profitably and is a happy place to be and can attract and keep the very best people. That's really what we're solving for. And so uh, what elements aren't working? Do we, do we have long, lousy meetings where nobody follows up? Do we have high turnover? In other words, break down what are the problems and then sort of analyze them and address them in a serious way. Because execution is really just, it's, it's like anything. It's a question of practice, repeating things, fixing what's not right. And it's living in the future. I, I love the expression that uh, Mike Krzyzewski uh, has when something is being fouled up at uh, Duke and it's basically next. In other words, we're not going to relive the last play next, you know? And so I think it's next. We're going to go on to the next execution. We're going to break it down. What's next? And, and that way you can kind of build towards an execution. You can't do it immediately. You can't click your fingers and make it happen but you have to you have to approach each of the things that aren't working right and address them so the book uh, comes out uh, april 21st what, what are you expecting from this joel like who have you written it for and who's it going to help the most so uh i would hope that it's really valuable to anybody so i i really first started thinking about it when i saw how broken our political system seems to be where it's all polemics hmm. it's all talk uh, we have leaders who understand power. In other words, they know how to reward their friends and punish their enemies and get reelected. And I thought, you know, that's not how you build a, an enduring country, a great society. So I started by thinking they need this. And then I imagined some of my students who became entrepreneurs and their 
companies failed. And I thought, you know, really, where did they fail? They failed typically at the execution stage. They didn't know how, they had a great idea and they went to market and the market bought it, but they didn't know how to execute over and over and improve incrementally. And so as I started thinking through this thing, I, you may have seen in the book, I use this term, the five skill player, which is sort of how, uh, or the five tool player, which is how they look at baseball players. You know, they can run, they can field, they can throw, and they can hit for average and they can hit for power. So what are the, what's the five skills of the entrepreneurial leader? And they have to have all of them and they have to have a way of thinking about developing all those or they won't be able to create a durable enterprise. So my hope was that anybody who's involved in any kind of an organization, including a family, will look at this and say, you know what, I need to become a five tool player and think about how, how they might develop those tools. I love the origin story. I, they're, they're often the, the books that I gravitate towards as well. They actually start somewhere else, but they end up in this kind of holistic model. And yeah, uh, yeah I'm really looking forward to, to seeing what it does. I want to know away from work, away from your book launch coming up, what are you kind of weirdly obsessed with at the moment? A Netflix show, it could be some, something on Wikipedia that you found, a new topic, um, something that you went to the library, something that you're learning about through your kids. Is there something that's kind of popped up out of the blue recently? We're like, this is really, really interesting. So it's funny. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I went and saw Hamilton. Okay. In New York. And uh, I didn't know that much about Alexander Hamilton. So I read the Ron Chernoff book. And then I read it again. And then I realized he'd written a book about uh, John Adams. And then I started reading David McCullough's books on Washington and Grant. And then, you know, one thing led to another until finally, I'm now into uh, Winston Churchill, Andrew Roberts' book on Winston Churchill. And uh, he wrote one on Napoleon too. And I'm finding that knitting together these uh, histories, these biographies is really insightful. It, it really gives me insight about, you know, how people have made hard decisions and overcome difficult things. If you're in a leadership role, the odds are most of the decisions you've got to make are 5149 decisions. Hmm. That is if you're doing your job. If you're making a bunch of 70-30 decisions, you've not delegated. But so most of the decisions are really tough ones and you're gonna get a bunch of them wrong. So what do you do when you get it wrong? And that's really what I see from a lot of these folks. And, and some of them really have some, uh, some limitations and have made some mistakes and you can learn from those too, but that's really what, kind of the jag I'm on right now. Uh, that warms my heart. I, so there's, actually, there's a, a sub chapter in my book about that topic exactly and talks yeah. about Churchill and you know it, it's more so around judging the, the full context of the human being yeah and like some of the things that the Churchill is on record as saying or Jobs or Disney or whoever these kind of grand leaders are um, but particularly Churchill like some of the things that he's on record as saying are particularly woeful um, yeah. <laughs> and that's it's not to take away from the achievements it's to just say let's look at this whole person 
Yeah. And, and that goes for Mandela. It goes for, for absolutely everyone. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating once you get past all the memes and quotes on, on kind of social media and actually go and look at, at the people and the decisions that they've made and why and the context to those decisions. It's, it's truly fascinating. And it gives you hope for yourself. <laughs> exactly. Because you know you've fumbled the ball a bunch of times. And yeah. the trick is to pick it up again and get, get going. <laughs> Absolutely. Jeez, oh, Churchill, Churchill got through this so I can get through it. <laughs> but you know, uh, there's a, so after Pearl Harbor, he came and spoke to the U.S. Congress and then he went up to speak to the Canadian Parliament, uh, I think end of December. And there was an Armenian Canadian by the name of Yusuf Karsh, who was a famous photographer. And he was assigned the role of getting Churchill's picture. And he took several of them and Churchill was just, you know, he didn't like it and he was sort of getting the pleasant uh, shot. And Karsh reached up and grabbed the cigar out of his hand and he, he got this picture of Churchill kind of glowering, <laughs> which is the most famous picture of Churchill uh, from that whole era. And so my son bought me a copy, one of the original copies of that uh, photo, and it's on my wall. And the reason it's on my wall is because it allows me to say, Churchill got through World War II. I can do this next thing I've got to do. Love it. That's perfect. <laughs> All right, Joel. So you've got the book coming out. It's called Entrepreneurial Leadership, The Art of Launching New Ventures, Inspiring Others and Running Stuff. But you do a million other things like we talked about at the top of the show. Where can people find you, the book, and all the different things that you've got going on? So I'm on LinkedIn. I think I have a website called Joel C. Peterson. And uh, somebody will be able to tell you what the other <laughs> stuff is. I don't, I don't keep track of it. You know, I, lo I love getting the ideas out there. I don't like being the center of attention. <laughs> but uh, you've got to do some of that to get the ideas out. So. Well, I think you're about to be after this one comes out. So prepare yourself for that. But... Um, <laughs> I, like I said at the top of the show, I, I came late. I, as soon as I saw what you were talking about and your ideas, I immediately gravitated towards you. Um, so I'm really glad that we made this conversation happen and, and thanks for your time today, mate. Well, thank you, Cody. Appreciate it.